0: Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Eric Gurna here. just want to take a moment. Um, Before we get into this uh, interview with Jane Quinn of Children's Aid Society today, to uh, mention that this episode of Please Speak Freely is uh, dedicated to the memory of Joy Dreyfus. Uh, Joy uh, passed away um, recently, and uh, she was a real um, pathmaker and leader and thinker in the world of community schools um, and really looking at schools and the educational system as more than just um, teaching to the test, more than just teaching to outcomes, but really being the the kind of hub of community services and supports that um, Jane and, and her team at Children's Aid Society have been working so tirelessly for. Her book, Full Service Schools, which was published in 1998, uh, was a big influence on me. I read it while I was in grad school, and um, it really opened up uh, my thinking about what school can be. Um, the subtitle of that is A Revolution in Health and Social Services for Children, Youth, and Families. And that's really what, what Joy worked for. I didn't have the honor of knowing her personally. Um, we, had, we had some brief correspondence, but um, her work was incredibly important to me. And uh, I just want to mention that this episode is dedicated to her. Um, uh, my condolences go out to her loved ones and family. You can go on the community schools, Coalition for Community Schools website, uh, communityschools.org, to see more about Joy. Um, There's a video clip there of her her talking, and it gives some tributes from from various um, people in the field who really express their own thoughts about Joy and her work and her life. And now uh, we can go right into uh, my interview with Jane Quinn of Children's Aid Society, who's talking about community schools, which is what Joy's work was all about. So I'm here in New York City with Jane Quinn, who is Vice President for Community Schools for Children's Aid Society. Welcome, Jane.
1: Hi, how are
0: you today? Good. And uh, Jane is also director of the National Center for Community Schools. Uh, Jane and I met several years ago. Um, gosh, twelve? more than more than twelve, twelve years ago. Yeah. Think, yeah, I've been I've been with Development Without Limits for twelve years, so it's more like fourteen Fourth- years ago. Yeah, okay. when I was working at LA's Best out in Los Angeles, and Jane came and visited our program, and we've been connected in various ways ever since, um, and I think share a lot of the same values about uh, youth work and education. And I was eager to talk to Jane about a lot of things, um, the community schools work in particular, and and how that relates to a lot of things that have been going on right now. Um, But, you know, I I also think, Jane, that you have uh, quite a career And I I would love to just hear a little bit about the things you've done before you came to Children's Aid Society, before we get right into the the current work that you're doing.
1: Oh, great. Sure. I'd be happy to talk about that for a short period of time, although I've had a long career. I think the... um, I didn't say it
0: was long. I just said it was quite a career. Well, but it
1: is long, too. It's been over four (laughs) decades that I have been a social worker and a youth worker. Um, I have a master's in social work. I started my career actually in child welfare in Chicago. Uh, Mm -hmm. where I got my master's degree. I worked for the Juvenile Protective Association. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I got a job at the District of Columbia Health Department. I bet this is Mm. all stuff you don't know about me. Yeah, this is. I worked there for nine years, Mm -hmm. and I worked really on the front lines. I mean, child welfare is the front lines, but so is public health. And I worked in a a maternal and child health center for nine years. And I noticed one day... um, that there was a school across the street from our health center. And I asked the staff, has anybody been over to visit that school? And people said, no, no, we haven't. And I said, well, let me go over there and see if we could be helpful to them.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And the principal looked at me and she said, really? And I said, yeah, really. And she said, she went and grabbed the guidance counselor. And the guidance counselor and the principal said, we need help with sex education. Mm. And I was off to the races. For the next nine years, I worked in the D.C. Health Department and in the D.C. schools helping to create uh, programs related to sex education and adolescent sexuality. So that was a, a strand of my career before I got into community schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked then for the, a group called the Center for Population Options. Hmm. And then I was recruited by Girls Clubs of America, and I worked there for also for nine years, and I was the national program director. And I think when I worked at girls' clubs, I expanded my practice beyond pregnancy prevention and sex education and really got into a much broader set of issues around youth, youth uh-huh. development. And, but I've always thought of my career as a social work career. I've always thought of myself as a youth worker, And um, after I left Girls Clubs, I went to the Carnegie Corporation of New York where Mm -hmm. I worked for three years on a project that resulted in a book called A Matter of Time, Risk and Opportunity in the Non-School Hours. Mm -hmm. So basically, you can see I've been kind of moving around the desk, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, after that, I went to the DeWitt Wallace Reader's Digest Fund where for seven years I worked as the program director and was... um, I had the great privilege of helping to give away $30 million a year for youth programs. Um, After I did that, after I worked in philanthropy for 10 years, I was really itching to get back into the world of practice, and I was given this great opportunity to work at the Children's Aid Society where I work both locally and nationally on a strategy called community schools.
0: And, you know, I I first learned about community schools when I was in grad school and I was working in after school programs and I was, uh, you know, studying education policy and um, really getting into starting to learn about what youth development is and what the youth development approach is. And I remember, so I don't even remember what it was in, but there was a chapter of a book or a chapter of an article that was about. Um, the community school, which I believe is the one that just had the 20th anniversary. Is it 218? Is two eight,
1: intermediate school 218 in yeah. Washington Heights. Yeah. yeah,
0: which is, which as you just informed me, just had your, your 20th anniversary of that being a community school. Right. And I read uh, a synopsis of that and it was just the simple idea that public schools are public assets and public resources and should be utilized beyond just from, you know, 9 to 3 or whatever the school hours are, that they can be a real resource for the whole community, for young people, for families, for everybody in the community, and that it can be a hub of, of services and supports for the community. It just struck me. It's, it's funny how the, the things that seem like epiphanies always seem to be the most obvious things, that it just seemed like the most obvious um, idea. And I got so excited. I ended up focusing so much of my, my study in grad school and and now you know as I continue maybe not working directly with community schools but continue to advocate for that for that idea it's been hugely impactful for me. Um, you you say you sort of been circling around it, but when <laughs> do you remember when you sort of did you yeah. have a similar moment at all? Was it more gradual?
1: Well, I was really talking about circling around the desk in the sense of going from direct service to mm-hmm. national program development and planning, okay, yeah. which had gotten me then, of course, into fundraising and right. then. Then I moved over to the, I did some research when I was at Carnegie, and then I did some grant making Mm -hmm. when I was at Wallace, and now I feel like I'm really integrating all of that work. So I've been kind of moving around the desk, but I do think that community schools is a strategy for pulling all this together, all Mm -hmm. this good stuff. And I, you know, I appreciate what you said about it is a simple idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the simplest explanation I've heard of community schools is Uh, was in a conversation, actually a presentation that was being given by an urban superintendent whose name is Patricia Harvey. She was the superintendent of schools in St. Paul for many years. Mm -hmm. And they had started a community school initiative called Achievement Plus, and she was reporting on that. And this was at a meeting of the Coalition for Community Schools. And this just rolled off her lips, but it seemed to me to be a great way of explaining this Simple idea. We'll get into the complexities mm-hmm. in a minute. But simply, she said, you know, as we've been doing community schools in St. Paul, I've come to think of community schools as a strategy for organizing the resources of the community around student success. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I wrote that down. I was like, bingo. Mm-hmm. I didn't even need to write it down because it's so clear. It's so simple. and it, But it's packed, yeah. right? It's packed. Because in so many communities, the resources are not organized in the right way. They're operating in silos, mm-hmm. and children are whole people. So we want to find ways to bring comprehensive and integrated supports and services and opportunities and surround children with with those opportunities. So I love that definition, and um, I think it conveys that this really is a simple idea.
0: Mm-hmm. And what I heard in that 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 really jumped out at me was organizing the resources of the community around student success, because oftentimes um, I feel like especially in today's culture of of education reform and everything that's going on, it's so much is talked about what the school needs to do, what the school system needs to do, what teachers need to do, um, as though those are the only things that impact student success. And that definition really talks about organizing the whole community around helping young people to thrive.
1: right. I think that's I think that's a good point. So I'm not saying that schools don't need to have sure. a reform agenda as well. but I think if we but I, I I want to speak also about that part of the definition about student success, mm-hmm. and what do we really mean by that? And I think when you and I talk about that, um, and lots of us in the youth development field, we're thinking about the whole child. And we're thinking about all the things that we know um, from people like Richard Murnane and Frank Levy about the new basic skills and what are the skills that are needed both in the modern economy, but also in a democracy. What are those skills? And if we take all the research that we know about what does it mean, uh, what does productive adulthood mean in the 21st century, Mm -hmm. I think we absolutely come to the conclusion that we have to organize our resources differently. All of our, our resources, our economic resources, the resource of time, and mm-hmm. the resources, the human capital resources that are brought to bear when we do the wonderful work that we do around helping young people get to productive adulthood. But if we if we only take one part of the Mernay Levy um, framework, if we only say it's about reading and math, and Mm -hmm. they say at a minimum ninth grade level, then we're ignoring lots of other skills that we know are important. Things like communication skills, things like critical thinking skills, uh, skills like knowledge and comfort with technology. And those are just the ones to succeed in the economy. How about citizenship? How about the ability to be a responsible family member? So we know that all of those are the skills that you need in productive adulthood. So let's make sure that we're giving young people plenty of opportunities to practice those skills and to develop those skills.
0: And that issue of how we define success is so important because, you know, I feel like right now success is largely defined by grades and test scores, mostly test scores. And if we have we, we
1: lost our minds?
0: <laughs> do you think we have?
1: Yeah, I do. Why? Well, we how? Well, I want to talk about how we just know better. Mm-hmm. We just know better than that, you know? I mean, there are a lot of people that I've learned a lot from in my 40-some years in the field, and one of them is Jim Comer. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a chance to work with him. He was the co-chair of the task force that I worked with at Carnegie. And, you know, I've known Jim for a long time. And... He's a little bit like my minister at my church. He gives the same talk all the time, but the message is the truth, Mm. you know. And he says it's all about development. Here we are at Development Without Limits. (laughs) Um, Wonderful name. And where did we get this idea that we just have to worry about cognitive development? So, you know, I am a social worker. Jane Addams said that. An effective social worker should keep one foot in the library and one foot in the streets. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. And I have really tried to follow that dictum in my career. And I think if you really are serious about the research that we have, and we have a lot of it, um, if you're serious about that research, you can't end up where we have ended up. You can't end up with a fixation on test scores. How could that be the right the right prescription?
0: So why do you think that we've ended up so fixated on test scores
1: i I don't think I can explain it I, mm. I do think that we've kind of lost our minds. Um, I think that we've picked test scores because even though we all know they're a faulty measure, I don't say we they pick test scores because um, there's a simple elegance to it. Mm-hmm. But there's also a false elegance to it. And we know how, how fraught with problems that is. So um, I I can't explain it. I can't spend a lot of time thinking about it or worrying about it. I just know that it flies in the face
2: mm-hmm.
1: of all the research we have about child and adolescent development, all the research that we have about what it takes to get young people to productive adulthood in these three dimensions that we know are important, being able to participate in the labor force and earn a decent living, being able to be a fa- a responsible family member, and being able to be a citizen in a democracy.
0: Recently, I've been reminded of, of community schools quite a bit and of your work quite a bit, and one of the reasons that I wanted to, to talk with you is because um, a lot of the talk in the field of after school in particular, and even in the broader field of education, education reform has been about time and use of resources. And you mentioned time as one of the resources that we might need to change how we, mm-hmm. how we utilize. And um, I recently had the opportunity to to interview Jennifer Davis, uh, the the president and CEO of the National Center on Time and Learning. And uh, they've really spearheaded this whole expanded learning time initiative. And you know, you and I have talked about that a bit and we've talked about it in past episodes of Please Speak Freely, um, much of that is about uh, giving schools more time. People talk about time on task. People talk about utilizing time differently. People talk about, people actually talk about expanding time, which I don't think makes a lot of sense to most physicists, Um, but they talk about expanding the amount of time that young people are engaged in learning activities, whatever, however you might define learning activities. Um, It whenever I've been hearing about all of this, it seems to me like community schools have been talking about these kinds of things for a long time, but it's been one aspect of what community schools have talked about. And what feels missing f- for me in the conversation about expanded learning time and that whole thing is are all the other things that make community schools community schools, community partnerships in particular, um, and also just a more critical uh, look at how we learn, who's doing what, does this fit with uh, where young people are at developmentally, all the things that you just talked about. Um, where, How has the, the recent uh, advocacy and work around expanded learning time impacted your work?
1: I don't know that it's had a real impact. I mean, I've been on a number of panels with Jennifer Davis mm-hmm. and with, um, with other folks who are in the after-school field or in the expanded learning time field. I Mm -hmm. think it's all one field. I think we we have developed um, a variety of strategies to expand learning opportunities for young people. I think after-school programs are one way to do it. I think summer enrichment programs, which are generally considered part of the out-of-school time field, mm-hmm. um, are part of it. I think expanded learning time initiatives are a way to get at expanded learning opportunities, which mm-hmm. I think is at the heart of it. I think that the work that Jennifer Davis and her colleagues are doing is terrific. I think they've, they're creating pilot programs. I think it's very early in their work. Um, and I think Jennifer and I have talked about this a lot, about... Some of their early writing, I think, didn't, and, and this is true in um, Chris Gabrielli's book, they didn't emphasize the community partnership aspect enough.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I think that we know from lots of research and from lots of experience that the work of helping young people get to productive adulthood is bigger than any one institution can take on. Schools, you hear schools more and more, I would say over the last 20 years, I've heard more and more school folks saying, we need partners, we can't do this by ourselves. But I think that the idea of um, playing around with time, not trying to make more hours in the day, I think we'd all love to do that, but I don't, I don't have much hope for that. Um, I think the idea of experimenting is a great idea, but I think we, have to, we shouldn't jump to conclusions. I think the research... Um, that Jennifer and her colleagues are doing and that um, the after-school corporation is doing is still pretty early. Um, And we're all keeping an eye on it. Meanwhile, I think the after-school field has done a terrific job of producing very good results um, in in lots of cases, particularly when we are looking at high-quality programs. So we've learned a lot about after-school and and summer programs and how to produce quality in those programs. We want to take everything we've learned from that and integrate it into these other strategies. So integrate all of that into ex- extended learning time, integrate all of that into community schools. I, I think you and I have the same understanding of that community schools is a strategy. It's not a program. Mm-hmm. It's a strategy, And that a core element of community schools has always been expanded learning opportunities. So every community school that I know, and I'm familiar with hundreds of them across the country, a core component um, of what they do is expanded learning opportunities through after, before and after school programs, through summer enrichment, and not just for the students in the school, often for other young people in the neighborhood. Think about the Beacon Schools in New York City and several other cities. But also they're about expanded learning opportunities for parents and other adults. Mm-hmm. So typically a community school will have adult education programs as well as all of these um, expanded learning opportunities for young people. In addition to that, many community schools have a whole set of services brought in by community partners that are designed to remove barriers to children's learning and healthy development. So they might bring in medical, dental, Mm -hmm. mental health, and social services. And all of that is integrated with the core instructional program. So our listeners can't see me, but I'm holding up my (laughs) fingers and you can see me, Eric, that we talk about community schools as a developmental triangle. Mm -hmm. That is on one, the left leg of the triangle is the core instructional program. We are working in schools, after all. And we are linking these two big sets of things to the core instructional program. Mm -hmm. So the right leg of the triangle is expanded learning opportunities, and the bottom of the triangle is services designed to remove barriers to learning and we manage the corners of the of the triangle and use those conceptually those Mm -hmm. corners to do the actual integration work so we make sure that the after school program is enhancing complementing supplementing what kids are learning during the regular school day Mm We're making sure that on the bottom of the triangle, that the services that are offered don't disrupt the core instructional program, but that they are really, you know, that the doctors and nurses and the dentists are working with teachers, talking with teachers, and also, I think more importantly, talking with young people about the importance of education. Mm-hmm. Because we know how important that is to have consistent messages that all of the adults surrounding children should be working toward their their school success the way we're defining it that is their learning and their healthy development
0: when you mentioned that the the triangle and you put up your fingers as i am now doing as a triangle what what came to mind for me was was maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah. because it's it sounds like most of the community school approach is based on that that it's it's about you know it's it's hard to it's hard for a young person to learn how to read when they're hungry or when they didn't get enough sleep or when they have um, health problems or um, are having problems at home that they don't have any assistance with learning how to deal with and um, and that we have to meet the basic needs in order for the higher level cognitive, intellectual, creative um, needs to be met. That's a worldview. It's a developmental worldview. Right, right. And I think it's a worldview that that not everybody shares that I think, I I think that a lot of people, um, whether they're actually in education or they just like to talk about it, are come at it like more of a, um, what I think of as a transactional sort of behaviorist approach, which is we need to do this, this and that so that we'll get that, that and this. So if we, if we give more time if we do use certain types of curriculum and if we hire certain kinds of teachers, those are the inputs the outputs will be higher levels of quote unquote student achievement which is measured by test scores. Do you um, how much do you deal with the philosophical approach and the underpinnings that community schools is based on and how much is this how much of this is a conflict in your in your work?
1: Well, you know when I am asked to speak about community schools, which I am asked to do quite often, mm-hmm. I always start with the research base. Tell me the research base for that, that set of theories.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to compare my research base to that research base. You're right. We're talking about Maslow. We're talking about Bronfenbrenner. We're talking also um, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who talked about the ecological context of growing up, and I think mm-hmm. his um, his work has been very influential in certain um, you know in certain parts of the education community. that's mm-hmm. pretty old stuff. Um, we have fifty years of research on resilience, going back to the work of Emmy Werner and more recently people like Bonnie Baynard who talk about the importance of having Uh, caring, consistent adults in the lives of children. And community schools is a strategy for bringing more caring, competent adults into the lives of children and bringing a wider array of caring, competent adults into the lives of children, into real, real authentic relationships. We have 25 years of research, going back to the work of Reginald Clark, about the importance of out-of-school time and how uh, when young people have a chance to participate in what he called high-yield learning activities during mm-hmm. the non-school hours, that that supported their school success. We have work from people like Deborah Vandel and Milbury McLaughlin who have also documented the results of young people's participation in high-quality out-of-school time activities. And Deborah Vandel's work, I think, particularly puts a spotlight not only on academic achievement, but on what she calls emotional adjustment, social relations, and work habits. These are all things that show up right away when we're l- looking at the studies of the labor economy,
2: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
1: So we have that research. Then we have a whole lo- body of research, again, about 20 to 30 years on the importance of parental engagement in children's education. So we're drawing on all of these strands of research, not to mention all the work of Jackie Eccles and Jim Comer and people who've been really speaking and writing for years about the the basic developmental needs and the stages of child and adolescent development. Our knowledge about that hasn't really changed very much over the last since I went to graduate school in mm-hmm. the in the late '60s, what has happened, I think, is that we have forgotten a lot of the things that we used to know. Back in the Progressive era, John Dewey and Jane Addams were working together as an educator and a social worker. Mm-hmm. And John Dewey, in 1902, wrote a whole monograph called "Schools as Social Centers." Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So if we had listened to people like John Dewey and Jane Adams, we'd be in a much better place than we are now. But if we don't look at the right...
0: If we don't look at research, mm-hmm.
1: and if we don't learn from history, we're in big trouble.
0: Well, who are we listening to now? Like, how did we end up where we are now?
1: I think you should talk to somebody else about <laughs> that. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm intrigued that yeah. um, D- Diane Ravitch has... Really been so courageous in in writing and speaking about how, as a founder of the standards movement, she now sees that um, there were some unintended consequences. not that anybody's opposed to standards, but right. the task isn 't that simple right um you know, I keep thinking as you're trying to push me in this direction to say "Well, how I think we got here, and I, <laughs> I really don't know, you know. I mean, um, I could explain more what happened in the economy than I can explain yeah. what happened in, in education. But, um, you know, I think there is a tendency among a lot of policymakers to look for simple solutions. I think the business community has had a huge impact on education and in many ways has oversimplified what the work is about and um, has downgraded the expertise of educators mm-hmm. and of developmentalists. Um, so, you know, you describe the kind of producing widgets orientation that I think we see in some schools and we certainly see reflected in a lot of public policy. I became very concerned. Um, let's see, I guess it was about five years ago when the New York State Legislature started talking about time and time on task. And that was a phrase that you used. Mm -hmm. And there was no conversation about what the task was. Right. So I started writing. I wrote a Youth Today column called Time to Consider uh, back in 2007, saying I was getting really alarmed about this because... I have an understanding of what we need to do. I think we need to expand learning opportunities and to expand opportunities for young people to learn in different ways and to be deeply, authentically engaged in learning. But if you look at, let's say, the report of education sector called On on the Clock, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful report, um, what they do in that report, among other things, is they document... They conceptualize time in school as four concentric circles. The outer circle is time spent in the school. Mm -hmm. You go in one layer, it's time spent in the classroom. You go in further, and it's instructional time. And you go into the bullseye, the center of the circle and it's called engaged learning. Right. That's what we need to get fixated on. How do we expand the the quality, the amount and quality of engaged learning?
0: And this this is what it comes down to for me with this whole conversation about time because the conversation about time lately has ex, has focused on extending the school day or extending the school year and it seems so crazy to me because you know, if we just look at how much time in schools um, and even in, in after school and other other kinds of uh, learning environments, how much of that time is spent doing things that aren't actually that productive or useful um, and how much of the time that's not useful is being spent in, in uh, preparation for either a test or, or homework that's due or, or an assignment that's really not that productive because it doesn't lead to engagement, it doesn't create... Uh, sort of intrinsically motivated uh, attitude on on the part of the students. So it's a lot of rote activity leading to either um, short-term information dumps or leading to nothing at all, just rote activity. Um, If we were to shift the whole um, premise and the pedagogic approach We would have so much more time if we threw so much of that out. We'd have so much more time without going from 3 to 3.37 or whatever it was they did a few years ago in New York City, 37 and a half extra minutes, Mm -hmm. without needing to to do any of that. And so much of the energy is going – so much of the energy could be put towards – shifting what we're doing and then seeing, do we need more time? Do we need more space? Do we need more money? The ingredients should be in service of an approach that has a core philosophical framework that really is based on research and what we know about learning. And that right. that would then drive the needs. But instead, it seems like the, the inputs are driving the whole conversation. Does right. that make any sense?
1: What you said just makes sense to me. And, um, and I, I, I agree with you. I think that We do, I think we have to lead with the research and we also have to lead with the results. Hmm. And I think that in the community schools field, um, the initiatives that are going on around the country are producing really terrific results. So terrific that last October, the Children's Aid Society held a national conference on It was called Community Schools Focus on Results. Mm -hmm. And we had presentations by colleagues from all across the country of their evaluation results. And I think, you know, what we're finding is that when you, when schools and community partners work in this more comprehensive and integrated way, we get better results. We get better academic results. results. We get better behavioral results. We get higher a te- um, higher attendance on the part of both students and teachers. Mm-hmm. The teachers' union have taken t- unions, both of them, the AFT and the NEA, have taken notice of this because teacher attendance translates into a lot of good things. Right? Mm-hmm. It translate it translates into continuity of the learning experience for young people. It translates into ka-ching ka-ching because. Principals and districts don't have to hire substitutes, and all in all, it's um, it's very promising. And the teachers unions are among the first of the education organizations to say, "Look, we need partners to work with us in this comprehensive, integrated way. We can't do this by ourselves. We can handle, you know, the leg of the the left leg of the triangle, and we know we've got a lot of fixing to do on that." Right. We know we've got to have a coherent curriculum. We know we've got to get a qualified teacher in every classroom. But we need the other supports and and services and opportunities that come with a community school. We need to pay attention when 30% of the kids in the classroom can't see the blackboard. And that's a real statistic, by the Mm -hmm. way. I mean, we have a partnership with the Helen Keller Institute, Uh, in New York City, and they are a fabulous partner. Mm. Um, And they come into a school, and we organize the vision screening for all the kids in the school. And they can, if they find that kids need glasses, and about 30% of kids don't, this is in New York City, Mm -hmm. one of the wealthiest cities in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The financial capital of the world, 30% of the kids fail the vision screening. The Helen Keller Institute, God love them, can make glasses on the spot. So the kids come back into the classroom with the glasses, and guess what? Their behavior improves immediately. Mm -hmm. So the community schools' work around the country is producing very good results on a lot of dimensions. I mentioned some of them already. Um, I want to mention a couple of others because I think that one of the real strengths of community schools Um, is parental engagement. We know how important that is as a contributor to student success and community schools because they are partnering with people like Children's Aid, people whose business is to work with families. These schools have much, much higher rates of authentic parental engagement. Not one-shot deals, but ongoing parental engagement and a lot of emphasis on helping parents understand what they need to do to support their own children's education. Mm -hmm. You know, things like getting their kids up in the morning, getting a good breakfast into them, getting their kids to school on time and regularly. And community schools across the country have been paying a lot of attention to the whole issue of attendance and particularly, and more recently, the issue of chronic absence, which plagues urban districts And I think as a new, really a new issue, it's a new way of looking at attendance. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about that, but we're, community schools around the country are showing very good results on overall attendance and on reducing chronic absence.
0: So I wanted to ask a question about the the vision statistic, Um, that 30% of kids failed the vision test. Is that 30% of the kids in the community schools or is that 30%, is that number like across New York City?
1: As far as I know that 's in our own schools, mm-hmm. um, and i don 't know the statistic for the city, but I know that it 's
0: very i know it 's high because part of this is there's there 's a dynamic to all of this, which is about um, economic development and poverty right. and you know you know I think it we haven 't even mentioned it i think because it goes without saying that community schools and the efforts of children 's aid society um, in New York and, and nationally, and you've even done some work internationally, I believe, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Have focused on serving um, e- economically poor neighborhoods and communities. Right. And that community schools, I would think, exist almost exclusively serving those communities. Is that is that correct?
1: Well, I think the intentionality um, with which a lot of the community school initiatives around the country are, approach the work is they're targeting their their. Uh, targeting their services in low income communities. But I would argue that schools in Scarsdale and in Fairfax, Virginia operate like community schools. They're open longer hours. They make sure that students have access to mental health services, to all the supports that they need in order to succeed. They have a lot of parental engagement. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of a lot of wealthier schools and a lot of independent schools really operate according to the kind of approach that we're talking about which mm-hmm. is making sure that that students have access to whatever it is they need in order to stay on that path to productive adulthood
0: I mean, there's an aspect of it that is just, uh, there's an efficiency argument to all of it that it just makes so much sense. Like how easy would it be if you didn't have to figure out when to get your kid to the dentist, but it was just part of you sign them up during the school day or whatever, even if it's on uh, during out of school time, that it's right there in the school or next to the school and that it's integrated and that it's not considered an aberration that you have to take your kid out and give an excuse. But it's like, of course, they're excused to go to the dentist or to get their vision checked or any of those things.
1: Right. Well, how about how about parents missing work too? I think yeah. the efficiency argument yeah. goes. Um, there are like layers to the efficiency mm-hmm. argument, right? Yeah. That it, you know, kids can be in school and not miss the core academic instruction, but they they can get the services right where they are. Right. Parents. Yeah. Parents love community schools and will fight for them because they know that it enables them to work. Hmm. Um. We are right now working with our colleagues at the Finance Project in Washington, D.C. They're doing what is called a social return on investment study, Mm -hmm. looking at what is the social return on investment of dollars that are invested in community schools. And they're in the process of doing that. They are creating a methodology for the whole community schools field on how to take a look at this. Um, I think from the point of view of a provider, like the Children's Aid Society, we definitely think this is an an effective and efficient way to work. Because a lot of the services that we're providing in the community schools, we would be providing out in the community. And I think a lot of YMCAs and Boys and Girls Clubs also find this, Mm -hmm. that working in the schools is and working in this way that's really integrated, not just co-located, um, is much more efficient and effective for them. They get better results and um, they bring down their their fixed costs about real estate.
0: I really love the idea of it going um, beyond just serving um, economically poor neighborhoods too because there's, there's something um, that always doesn't set quite right with me about so much of the field where it's like there's something that that poor kids and neighborhoods need, and then there's something that everybody else needs or right, right and um, right. it would be such an equalizer if that was a if that was a norm. Right. I heard um, something terrifying on the radio the other day of a story about a uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado, where they had had a you know a real economic crisis just right. like everywhere else they had needed to raise taxes, but they're it's very conservative there, and they had the voters had voted against raising raising taxes, and they had literally put something out saying if you don't if we don't raise taxes. We're not going to have street lights. The parks aren't going to be cleaned up. I mean, the most basic kinds of things. And so um, they created a system where they they, they didn't raise the taxes. They, they turned off the street lights. They stopped cleaning the parks. But blocks could get together and pay to have their street lights turned back on. Or neighborhoods could get together and pay to have their parks cleaned up. And some did. And some didn't. And so it, it became. Um, you know, you, you drive through at night and it'll be block by block neighborhood by neighborhood. It's either litter. Or it's not depending on whether you can afford See, it. Or I not.
1: told you we've lost our minds.
0: <laughs> it's a real dystopian sort of vision. And, but I right. do think that in so many ways that's been happening in education for a long time. Right. Um, my, my niece right. goes to a public school, um, good public school in Oakland, California, where the PTA is very involved to raise a lot of money, um, through auctions and other things. They raise enough money that they can hire an art teacher which when i first heard it i thought that's great like they can pay for an art teacher and they need an art teacher and that's tremendous but then it it really is pretty similar to that what i just described that one neighborhood gets a street light and the next neighborhood doesn't because they decide they could get together and afford to pay yeah. it there's an article in the times just last week about um, gentr- gentrified neighborhoods and how the ptas I are sort that. of yes. has become this hub of sort of angst and conflict around right. how active how much right. how much money to raise
1: you know it's funny that we love to talk about finland in these debates yeah. on education but yeah. we never want to talk about their tax rate
2: mm-hmm. right which is i mean
1: the social democracies well yeah. i don't know actually specifically about finland i have a lot of friends in the netherlands mm-hmm. and their tax rate is about 40 percent mm-hmm. and they are you know they're they have universal health care and mm-hmm. they're They're paying for a lot of wonderful services. They're paying for public education. They're not talking about not paying for it. But it's intriguing to me that we love to talk about Finland and how wonderful their education system is. And every once in a while, somebody will point out that they have very few poor children in Finland and that they have a very high tax rate and that they're getting what they're paying for. Mm -hmm. We're getting what we're paying for, too, and it's scary. Mm
0: -hmm. You mentioned uh, chronic, chronic absenteeism, or, or absenteeism being something that you all are really um, focusing on, and it, it's so tied in with engagement. Oh, know? boy. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and uh, I to before I ask you about your work and that, I, I want to relate a story I heard just last week about a, a principal who um, was at a meeting of other principals, um, and they were talking about this issue of chronic absenteeism, and they said that they had come up with an idea uh, for how to combat this, which was they were going to make wanted posters of their chronically absent kids and post them in the neighborhood. And that the other this is second hand, but that the others thought laughed and thought it was a joke, but that this principle was quite serious. Uh, you know, we talk about criminalization yeah, of youth that's and that's exactly this. where and
1: my mind was going.
0: The approach that you're advocating is putting young people at the center and doing everything we can yes. to provide to create an environment of support and resources. Yes. But a lot of people's response to something like chronic absenteeism is not what do those young people need in order to help them to succeed. It's we're going to target them and we're going to use a strategy and we're going to intervene and we're going to, in this case, humiliate them and make sure that other people police them and tell them you have a wanted poster up, you need to go to school.
1: So I want to tell you or remind you because you probably know this that in 2008 the new school for social research the Center for New York City Affairs did a study of chronic absence in New York City and they found out that the previous year in 2007 that 90,000 elementary school children in New York City had missed a month or more of school Hmm. When elementary school children are absent, they are generally not hanging out on the street corners. They are generally at home. They are either generally, they're ill, or they have some serious family problems.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So going back to Maslow, right, about meeting the needs, um, I think that's where we have to start. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how a principal gets so desperate that he or she would think that putting wanted posters up is a good idea. Um, I have wondered for a long time, though, why it is that when adults see young people on the subway or on the bus, who obviously should be in school, that they don't say something. Mm. You know, that campaign about if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Um, I do say something when I see young people. I've heard some great stories from kids say? about why they're not in school. I, you know, I'm friendly, so I'll just say, I can talk to anybody, right? I, I'll say to a kid on the subway, I don't care how scary-looking they yeah. are, but i just say, um, how are you doing today, and what's going on, and is there some reason why you're not in school today? Um, and the favorite one that kids give me is, oh, I go to Catholic school. But I can get them because I went to Catholic school for 17 years. I know all the holidays, right, the holy days. So uh, I'll say, oh, yeah, really? So you don't have school? They're saying, yeah, yeah, it's a Catholic holiday. So I'll say, well, I grew up Catholic. What is it? And then they go hamana, hamana, right? But I do think that we as adults have some responsibility to communicate to young people that we understand that it's their job to go to school. But that's not enough, right? The right. issue is that when kids are missing school, first of all, the school has a responsibility to follow up immediately,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then they need to try to be supportive and helpful. It's hard for schools to do that if they don't have community partners. Mm. So the uh, Mayor Bloomberg has taken this on as an issue, and I really appreciate that, and has set up a whole task force that's working on He he paid a lot of attention to this um, report, which I think is great. And there is currently a pilot program going on in New York City under the mayor's leadership um, where 50 schools in the New York City system that have been identified as having high rates of chronic absence are really working on this problem. And they they have established attendance teams, and they're following up with kids as soon as they're absent. And they are... um, They've created a whole cadre of success mentors who are working on a one-to-one one basis with young people to bring, or they have a caseload, but they're working one-to-one sure. to re-engage kids in school or to address these problems, particularly in the elementary grades that might be keeping kids from being able to attend regularly. Mm-hmm. The engagement issue is a huge, huge issue. Um there was a study a couple of years ago, big study, you know, one of these very rigorous national studies done by some people uh, out in Indiana. I think it was 100,000 high school students that they interviewed, mm-hmm. surveyed, and interviewed. And in high school, you know, a lot of the problem, this was a sur- uh, study about student engagement in high school. One of the most striking features to me in this study was that a quarter of the kids who did not feel engaged in school, said the work was too hard, but a third of the students said they were disengaged because the work was too easy. Mm -hmm. We have got to fix the core instructional program in our schools. It's good in some schools, but it's very weak in some other ones. And so, you know, I think before we start talking about extending the school day, I'd feel a lot better about that as a strategy if I knew we had beefed up the quality of the core instructional program in a lot of our schools, particularly in our lowest income schools. When a third of high school students are telling you in a rigorous study that the work is too easy, you got a
0: problem on your hands. Can't we just raise the standards? Yeah right. <laughs> I keep hearing that raise the standards I don't know, standards. we tried
1: that for twenty years and it hasn't I don't know it how high you can the, raise it, them. hasn't had the impact <laughs> that we want. So I think we might need some I think we might need some other strategies. And yeah. that's really you know, what community yeah. schools is all about. A yeah. strategy to make sure that we are doing everything we can. I loved what you said about surround keeping students at the center of our attention all the time and surrounding them with all the all the good stuff. You know, one of the best maybe the maybe the single most important study that has come out in education over the last decade is a study by Tony Breich and his colleagues in Chicago called Organizing Schools for Improvement, Lessons from Chicago. Hmm. This this book was um, written up on the front page of Ed Week mm-hmm. two years ago. It was around April. And I looked at this article, and I ordered the book immediately. And, you know, through the wonders of technology, the next day the book is on my desk, <laughs> and I grabbed it and read it. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and really... Speaks to the complexity of what we're doing, and also gives a very clear-cut framework for what we need to do. So I'm going to take a minute and describe this, okay? Mm-hmm, please. Um, so what they what they did. So Tony Bryke was at that time the head of a consortium on Chicago school research, mm-hmm. and they did. He and his colleagues did this study uh, where they looked at. Seven years of data in the Chicago, the K-8 schools in Chicago. And they were looking at 100 K-8 schools that were on an improvement course. And they looked at another 100 schools that were either stagnating or declining in student achievement. So student achievement was definitely what they were looking at. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to understand. Wonderful study, really. Wonderful set of questions. And they were looking at what was going on in these 100 schools that were improving, that wasn't going on in these hundred schools that were stagnating or declining. What they found was that there were five, what they call essential ingredients of school improvement. The first one was the principal is the driver of change and has an inclusive leadership style. Mm-hmm. The second essential ingredient was authentic family and community engagement. It's starting to sound like a community school, mm-hmm. right? The third ingredient was that the school at the building level had the ability to build professional capacity among the teachers, but among everybody in the building, Uh the custodians, the security officers, the partners, right? Right. So you start to think cross-training, making sure everybody is moving in the direction of the change. Uh The fourth ingredient love this one, student-centered school climate. Mm -hmm. They were worrying about whether students were feeling connected to school, whether students felt safe in school, whether they felt welcomed, whether they felt known by the adults in the building. All of that's packed into student-centered school climate. And then the fifth one is coherent curriculum. And by coherent curriculum, they meant that All of the first graders were learning essentially the same things. I mean we do have standards, right? And now Mm -hmm. we have common core standards that most states have adopted. So the first graders were all learning basically the same thing, not in a lockstep or prescriptive way, but you know, we're we're learning in relation to the standards. But also the coherence is that the second grade teachers Knew what the first grade teachers were learning, so, you know, in in educational parlance, it's called horizontal and vertical alignment or uh-huh. or coherence. So those were the five essential ingredients, very clear. And the other thing that th- that Breik and his colleagues said is that. These are essential ingredients. You can't leave any of them out. They said it's like baking a cake. Mm-hmm. You can't leave right. out the baking powder right. because these ingredients interact with each other. Yeah. This is the kind of research we should be basing our public policy on, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's very um, helpful, and it's a <clears throat> it's a helpful analogy to me for one thing because I love cooking analogies. Um, <laughs> But for another, because it, it it seems so hard to get across why all of these things are interconnected, right. and and that analogy makes makes so much sense because you can have you can have the greatest recipe in the world, and especially with baking, uh, baking boggles my mind because it's it's more um, you know science than anything else. It's it's right. not very forgiving. If you leave something out, That's the whole right. thing will fall flat. That's right. And you know you can you can say you're going to leave out the social emotional side of things right. because it's just too hard to measure, but you're not just leaving one thing out when you do that, right? You're you're undermining yourself. You're undermining your own goals because that is you're exactly not going to get to right. anything else.
1: And I'm glad you said that baking is a science, but so is education, mm-hmm. and that's what's so distressing about, um, you know, the appointment of. Su- Superintendents and this is a trend that's been going on for fifteen or twenty years of yeah. hiring people who have no education experience as if expertise does not matter. Yeah. You know, I think we're seeing the best results in districts that have people who understand the science of education and who understand the science of brain development.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I mean I I think another issue is about how we how we need to do make much better connections between early childhood Education, care, and education, and elementary care and education. Many community schools are working on this. Um, in some cases, by really integrating early Head Start and Head Start into elementary schools, mm-hmm. and making it much easier for children, families, and teachers to make that transition from early childhood into elementary school. But when you start looking at the neuroscience, the really the new findings um on neuroscience and how brain development starts in utero but absolutely that babies as soon as they're born are are learning how can we be not investing in early ch- in high quality early childhood programs for all children
0: yeah and you were you were talking about the the hiring of superintendents who don't have education background it's like to me it's it's like the deification of of business leaders and that if you succeed in business, right. that that trumps everything else. Right. Um, and it's a it's a scary trend. The other thing that's it's a really a scary helpful, trend
1: when you look at what's happened to the economy, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Like I mean, we messed that up, so now we're going to turn our right. attention to the. Schools. But that
0: that trend started before the economy failed, and it's right. like instead of going, oh, you know what? Maybe actually, since they don't know their own business, we shouldn't be running them to higher hours. It was it was like they'd already committed. It was like Bloomberg and Gates and everyone else was already they were all in. To that, to believing in that. And so they're not going to back down. It, it feels to me like a pride sort of ego thing. Like we are going to make this work. We, we are so sure that we're right that business thinking will trump everything else.
1: Well, and I want business leaders to be very worried about education, but I want them to understand that there is a huge knowledge base yeah. that we all on which
0: we all need to build our practice. Right. right. And you know what else helps if they uh, care about kids?
1: yeah that helps too <laughs> that's a good that 's a really good ingredient
0: um I know we have to wrap up soon, but i 'm sitting here looking at this beautiful um, new book put out by children 's aid Society called Building Community Schools: a Guide for action and i haven 't got a chance to to really dig into it yet, but um, you know I just wanted to ask you about that, and is this available to people or
1: Yes, it is available thanks to the MetLife Foundation that supported the writing of this book and the publication of it. Um, it is available on our website, so people can download it for free um, on the National Center for Community Schools website, Okay. Uh, www.nationalcenterforcommunityschools.org, um, and... We also are giving this book away. We're able to do that because of the nice grant from our friends over at MedLife. This is a distillation, really, of all that we have learned from our community school's practice over the last 20 years. So this really is a guide for action. I think people can read this book and really um, get more of an idea of what this strategy really entails. And there are sections in here on how to get started and how to how to build actually a system of community schools. So we've included lots of very practical tools in this book and, um, love to have your listeners avail themselves of it.
0: Great. And it's, it's great. Cause I can do a commercial, like order this book, you know, and it's free. So I don't <laughs> even feel like I'm, I'm, plugging anything. No, but I would plug it even if it wasn't free. Cause it's, it seems like what it is, it's a resource that really summarizes everything we've talked about and puts it into practical terms for people who want to actually operationalize this and help people, to really take this movement and and really run with it,
1: and there's actually a picture of the developmental triangle in there, so instead there of having to yeah. figure out how we're holding our hands up in the air, people <laughs> can actually take a look at the at the diagram.
0: Great! So go to the National Center for Community Schools website and, and order the book. I do encourage you to order a, a hard copy because it is a a beautiful, beautifully published and designed book as many of the other publications related to community schools from children's aid have been in the past I remember. Jane I just want to really thank you for your time and thank you for all the work that you've been doing and I feel like I need to create a bibliography for this for this episode because it's been so chock full of, of information and references and everything so, so
1: Jane Adams would be proud of me right that indeed. I have, one one still have a library, foot in the library
0: One foot in the street. Thanks for being on Please Speak freely. okay. <laughs>